Let's turn together this morning to Ephesians chapter number 5. Ephesians chapter number 5 once again. And this morning we will be looking at the final few verses of this chapter. Ephesians chapter number 5. And we'll begin reading here in just a moment in verse number 29. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning there in verse number 29. We are continuing to look at the not only the instructions uh, that the Bible gives us about marriage, but more importantly, how that Christ's love for the church is to be seen and witnessed uh, in the way he loves the church. Verse 29 says, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. I want to draw our attention back to verse 31 and that expression there, that is found at the very last phrase, and they too shall be one flesh. They too shall be one flesh. Our subject this morning is that statement, one flesh. The Apostle Paul here now uses another argument to engage the the affections of the husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. He gives the illustration of They being their own bodies, by loving them, by loving their wives, they are in fact loving themselves. Paul teaches in this text that it would be most unnatural for a man to hate his own flesh. But on the contrary, man takes care of his own flesh. He nourishes it. He cherishes it. Uh, Quite honestly, uh, man adores his own flesh. So Paul gives the illustration here of how a wife is a man's own flesh, and instead of hating her, he ought to nourish and cherish her. Paul gives the reason in this text, which is because the saints which make up the church uh, are in fact members of him. Uh, We are in fact, when we become in Christ, we become one flesh with him. We are with him one blood, his blood. Paul demonstrates the case of a man and his wife that according to this original law of marriage, a man was to leave father, to leave his mother, and cleave unto his wife. Paul describes the entirety of this or the whole of this, which is something somewhat of a mystery. It's a mystery. It's all of its inner workings. But he does show it how it's the typical marriage relation but it also pictures the union that christ has with his church and of course this chapter closes by paul restating what we've already covered the mutual responsibilities of husband and wife one is to love the other is to show reverence so let's look at these verses by considering this one flesh relationship Paul writes there in verse 28, as a result of everything that has been said to this point, we looked last week at how 
this glorious church that uh, Christ looks upon. It says, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Uh, it was a very common saying with the Jews of the day that a man's wife was to be treated as his own body. And it was one of the very principles and the precepts of the wisest of the Jewish men that a man was in fact supposed to honor his wife more than himself. He was in fact to love her as his own body. That was just in the, the wise uh, Jewish men of the day. The reason was is because that husband was to treat that wife as his own not in the ownership situation, but in the appearance and the idea of one flesh. I am to love her because we are of one flesh. Paul's using this terminology because this was the language of the Jewish believers. This is something they would understand. When he makes mention of that you ought to love her as you love yourself, this was something that was common to them. For him to say no man ever hated their own wives in verse number 29, it's in contrast to what he just said in verse 28. Men ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. So this was the language of the day. Paul's doctrine, this is important, Paul's doctrine that he's getting ready to say and has spoken right here agrees fully with what the Jews already believed. I hope there's clarity there. That this is not a new concept that he's introducing. So it's not as if he's standing there and suddenly he tells the Jewish people, here's something you've never heard before. You ought to love your wives as you love yourself. That was common. What's now different is he's going to compare their love for how Christ loves the church which sadly, in many cases, the Jews who were non-believers did not believe that Christ was in fact the Messiah, nor would they believe that he was the head of the church. But notice again that phrase, I mean, verse 28 we covered last week, he that loveth his wife loveth himself. Why does that man love his wife as he loves himself? Because she is to be one body and one flesh with him. It is, it's an appalling thought to actually think about a husband not loving his wife. We'll talk more about that as we get further into this exposition. But no man, he says in verse 29, this is where now he introduces sort of this difference. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh. Now that's, that's unnatural. That's contrary to the very principles of nature. Now the Jews understood own flesh would extend not just to their own physical body, but to people who were in kinship with them. Okay, so when we see his own flesh, it doesn't always mean just my own personal body. It actually extends out in the, in the Jewish tradition of this, it extends all the way out to anybody who's kin to you. Now this is an important concept of what he's getting ready to say. In the relationship, in kinship, there is no one who is nearer to a man than his wife. That relationship supersedes even the relationships between mothers and children and fathers and children. It is, it is such a relationship that is one that it is unthinkable that there should be hatred in that relationship. And instead of hating 
her or hating those of his own flesh, he uses the terminology nourishes and cherishes, even as the Lord the church. Now he introduces the comparison. Here's how you ought to love her. You ought to love her as the Lord loves the church. How does the Lord love the church? Well, we know that the Lord has never hated his church. There's never been a time in history where Jesus Christ has looked at the true church and hated it. Now, is there a hatred of sin? Is there a hatred of false doctrine? Is there a hatred of heresy? Absolutely. But again, we've talked a lot about how just because something on the side of a building says church doesn't mean it's a true church. But his true bride, he has never hated. His true bride, he has never once thought about forsaking her. He has never once thought about loving her less, nor has he ever thought about just totally giving up and casting her away. But on the contrary, Christ, his love for the church, his people, his love is not just a love that is a benevolent, I pity you type of a love, but a love that's actually fully satisfied and he fully delights in. We can love in a benevolent way. I can love because I see someone needs love. I can love because someone's going through something difficult. But do you know what the true love of Christ is for the church? He doesn't love us just in a benevolent way because we need it. He loves us with satisfaction and delights in us. There's a great difference between hatred and anger. There have been times throughout history where Christ has been angry with his church. There have been times when the church has sadly moved away. It's fallen into apathy. It can happen to this church. We could fall into such an apathetic position to where we're really just going through the motions. We really don't care. We're not really walking with God. And there could be, we could fall into sin in this place to where we had sin suddenly start running rampant inside this little congregation. It could happen. It happened in Corinth. It wouldn't be beyond the possibility of here. He would be angry with his church if we allowed that to happen. But do you realize even in that situation, he would not hate the church? There's a great difference between anger and hatred. Christ may in fact be angry with his church, but he's not going to hate them. There's a difference between people and their actions. Christ may hate the actions of a church, but he never hates his bride. There's a great difference in something that we deserve and something that is actual fact. We still, in fact, are deserving of God's wrath. We are deserving of God's hatred. But if we are his children, we are his bride, we are not the objects of wrath. And we are not the objects of his judgment and hatred. There's also a difference between what we think is and what's actually real. There are believers who struggle with this who think because of some sin in their life, they're true believers, they've been converted, they repented of their sins, they believed in Christ, they falsely believe and say something like this, Christ must hate me right now. That's never true. Christ never hates you. Even in the midst of the most wicked, vile thing you could do as a believer, he never hates you. Is he angry at your sin because you've violated that? Absolutely. Does he hate you? No. Do you know how many Christians are absolutely stuck in the mire who think, falsely believe that I've done something after my, my conversion, that Christ looks at me and he hates me? 
Folks, that's a lie of the devil. That's the lie of your depraved nature. Christ could never hate his bride. As a matter of fact, it's a monstrosity to think that at any point in time, Christ has ever hated his bride. His love is everlasting. Now, there may be times in our life where we may not feel, I'm using that word very loosely today because it's a dangerous word, we may not feel his love. Do not be deceived by feelings, please. Do not be deceived in thinking that what you feel is real, what you feel is actually truth, because many, many times what you feel is exactly opposite of what Christ really thinks about you. What do we learn today, even during Bible study? We learned that we have an ever, he has an everlasting love for his people. He always loves his people. His love is never changing. He nourishes, he cherishes. He nourishes them as a father does his child and as a shepherd does to his flock. And that's how it should be in the husband and wife relationship. A husband should not love her just benevolently, but should be satisfied and delighted in her and love her in a never-changing way. To stay here today by way of application and to say that a husband and wife will never be angry with each other, you are absolutely fooling yourself. But I will say this, a husband and wife should never hate one another. There's a tremendous difference. And being angry doesn't mean I all of a sudden hate my spouse. Jesus, through the chastening process, it will, it will hurt. The chasing of God's hand hurts. And again, we've said this before, if you've never been under the chasing hand of God, I would strongly encourage you to examine your own faith and be sure you're actually in the faith because all believers will be chastened. No matter how good you think you're doing spiritually. Oftentimes I have found in my own life that the times when I think I'm doing the best spiritually is the time when God chastens me the hardest. Because he's chasing me for the spiritual pride that just rose up in me to think I've pretty much got this, I've got this licked, I've got this whipped. But there's not a love that he has. There's not a love that he has that changes. He has a love for his church. Nourishes has the idea of also to feed. Christ himself, of course, called himself the bread of life. He reminded his disciples about his covenant. He reminded his disciples about his promises. The gospel reminds us of those things which are nourishing. The doctrine of grace is a nourishing doctrine. It fills us. We feel his love. We understand his grace. Paul wants the hearers to understand this. He wants, he's, he's, he's speaking to his own countrymen, the Jews, and he says, you understand what it is to love your wife, but I want to give you a deeper illustration to engage your affections about how deep this actually runs. To cherish, what does it mean? It means that he cherishes us. How do we know that? By granting us communion with him. The fact that we're able to have fellowship and communion with Christ that is our great desire. There should be nothing more joyful for you today than to know that you have communion with the Savior of the world. Imagine there's nothing that more encourages our faith, nothing more that escalates our hope and our love than meditating upon what Christ thinks about His people. Folks, when you're going through the darkest of days, 
You don't need a kind word from somebody as much as you need to meditate upon the love of Christ for His church. When I'm going through the deepest, darkest valley, I ought to be able to think on the love that Christ has for me. There's perfect contentment in Christ. Now, these phrases that Paul uses, nourish and cherish, these are, these are expressive of his whole nature. There's a lot of other examples I could give us, but this is the picture of Christ and his church. He furnishes his church with everything that is necessary for life, godliness, and eternity. If you're uncomfortable in this world today, it's often because you're trying to find comfort from the world instead of finding your comfort in Christ while you're living in this world. A believer is not going to be comfortable in this world. You are not going to be settled and you're not going to look at the world and say, I love the way the world system functions. But what you can find is comfort in Christ as his church. And you can, can look to this world and you can say, that it is very dark and it is very discouraging. But Christ's love for me is always the same. He can't love me more and he can't love me less. I want you to think about this for a moment. I'm being brutally honest with you. There are human relationships, if we're honest with one another, where for even a brief moment... Whatever that relationship is, our love wanes and we for a moment entertain the idea that I might love that person just a little bit less than I did the day before. That's brutal honesty because that's human emotion. Do you realize that thought never crosses our Savior's mind where he says, I'm thinking and considering loving you, my bride, the church, a little bit less. This illustration that Paul is giving to the church and he's giving to the church at Ephesus whose makeup is Jews and Gentiles alike, they are hearing something that is absolutely mind-blowing when you consider. He begins now to give the reasons. Verse 30, For we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. Now, of course, Jesus is not speaking about being part of His natural body. Uh, that would make, if, if Christ had our body, he would be a monster. Let's be honest. If Christ was us, that's, that's, the, that's, a, that's a monstrosity of epic proportions. What he is talking about here, but Christ as he became a man, this is a reference to the incarnation, he became flesh. He partook of the same flesh and the same blood with us in otherwise, or took, took upon himself our flesh in order to suffer the penalty that was required. He didn't take on our blood because it's sinful blood, but he shed his blood. Our human nature, our human nature, if it had been Christ's human nature, it would have been corrupted. Folks, that's one of the things we have to strongly consider. Our nature is corrupted. Our, our flesh is corrupted. Our bodies, our flesh, our bones. That nature, that didn't come from the second Adam, which is Christ. That came from the first Adam. What happened to the first Adam? The first Adam fell. Christ indeed took on human nature. 
He was set up in God's thoughts and set the pattern of what life should be. But Paul here is speaking of the saints, not as men, but as new believers and new creatures in Christ. Something that is very peculiar to them. That's what it is to be members of his body. We are something new. We're a new creation. We are his creation by a direct gift of the Father. The Bible teaches that The church, the believers, were given to Christ the Son by the Father. I often am challenged by that thinking in my human nature, wow, some gift I must be to Christ. This is a gift with all of my depravity, with all of my corruption, with all of my wickedness, with all my vile thoughts and affections and desires that sometimes rule my entire life. What kind of a gift is that? It isn't a gift in itself, but all that the Father gave to the Son, He would in no wise cast out. It never enters the mind of Christ to cast His own away. Why? Because He could never hate them. We are now part of His body. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 5, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. So this church that has been made members of his body, his flesh and his bones, it is this picture of this relationship that Christ has to the church. Verse 31 of Ephesians 5, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now, those words are the laws of marriage. That law was cited from Genesis 2.24. It declares what should be. A man leaves his father and his mother, and he cleaves unto his wife. The two shall be one flesh. That's what should be. This is the way it's supposed to look like. And yet, Paul, as he continues to give this word, he continues to illustrate this. And he says in verse 32, this is a great mystery. There's something mysterious in this entire picture. There's something mysterious in that it is a figure or an emblem and a picture of something. It's a picture between, of the union between Christ and his people. Marriage somehow, mysteriously, is supposed to picture Christ's union between himself and his people. Now that's mysterious. Because we know it's corrupted by man's thoughts about what that's supposed to look like. There is 101 definitions today of what marriage is. There's an attempt to redefine it. Right? That's been happening for years. If, you, if this is new to you, you've just not been watching. This is, this is old. There's been a, this, all you're seeing is the fruit of a lot of effort that was made years and years ago, and it got in under our noses, and we didn't realize what was actually happening. And so now people are alerted. When did it suddenly become okay to redefine marriage? That didn't happen over the last 12 months. It happened over the last 50 years at minimum. You say, 50 years? Really? Go back and look. 
Go back and study what man began to trifle with. The first foundation of the home that was under attack first was the marriage relationship. They didn't start with the children. They started with the marriage relationship. It was an intentional attack against husbands and wives. Because if you can destroy that foundation, if you can get a society to actually become desensitized to what it is, and even its effects, it'll take hold. Christian marriage began to take on a different view. Potential husbands and wives started to kind of change and trifle. I'm talking about believers now, started to believe what was happening and say, well, what really is marriage? Should marriage really be this submission and love and reverence? Those are words that don't seem to play out in society. Doesn't that make that lady a second-class citizen? And suddenly believers started believing this, and they started saying, wait a minute, maybe, maybe they're right. Well, what you're implying is that God got it wrong. You're implying that God didn't get marriage right. You realize from the very beginning of the Bible, the intent of marriage was this one flesh picture. The entire intent of marriage was to picture one flesh, which was to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. This was not just about the physical man leaving his father and mother and the, the wife the lady leaving her mother and father and cleaving and that this was supposed to be just kind of a, a new arrangement. There's supposed to be a picture occurring here. Now that's why Paul says this is a great mystery. And he so clarifies this by saying, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. This is important because he's, he's given us the idea that the marriage relationship itself is not the perfect picture. Okay? It's not perfect. I have never met a perfect couple, and I have never seen a perfect marriage. I've seen people say they have the perfect marriage. I see people say, we have this completely figured out. And I just simply think in my mind, pride goeth before a fall. Because it's impossible for us to have a perfect marriage in these corrupt bodies. It's impossible for us to always say, my love for you will never wane. Now, it's easy to say on the wedding day, right? It's easy. Through good and bad. You know, life has a very, again, I'm, I don't want to go too far on this, but life has a way of really testing the real love people have between one another. It's an amazing thing. People go through a tragedy together and somehow that marriage relationship is the thing that suffers. He says, I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. And this is in a way to show us about what the law and the institution of marriage really was about. The leaving of the father and the mother certainly does prefigure or gives us some symbolism as to Christ coming forth from the father. He came into this world, took on this robe of human flesh without ever ceasing to be God. We do see pictures of Christ life here where he did have some disregard for his earthly parents when remember when he stayed back in jerusalem and they came and questioned him and he said this i must be about my father's business in effect he was disregarding his earthly parents 
Again, not suggesting that our young people should do that. We're going to learn about children's obey your parents and the Lord next week, so don't take it from that point. But it would appear that he was completely disregarding his earthly parents when you compared it with the relationship that he would have with his people and with his love for them. That's why when Jesus used terms about he who must follow me must hate his mother and father, he was not saying, go home and tell your mother and father I hate you and then come and follow me. But he's going to say, you're going to have to love me so much that your love for your parents is going to look like hatred. Now that's another mind-blowing thought. How can I love Christ to that extent that my love for my earthly parents is going to look like hate. If you've solved that mystery in your mind, please share it with me. I'd love to hear the full explanation of it because that's a mind-blowing thought to me. But the man cleaving to his wife expresses the strong affection, the perfect love that Christ has towards his church. It illustrates the communion that is between Christ and the church. The being one flesh illustrates the union between, the Christ, between Christ and the church. When we say, and Ephesians says, Christ is to have the preeminence, it's not just because he's king. It's because of that relationship and that unity, that one flesh we have with him. Adam and Eve, it is typical of Christ and his church. Now, again, some of you, this may be the first time you've been exposed to this. And if I'm insulting by saying that, I don't mean to. But this, this is where we start to see a little bit of difference in where your doctrine may have come from and where you are now. Some people just look at Adam and Eve as a situation of an example of how man fell. They don't consider the fact that in Adam and Eve, we also had a type of Christ and his love for the church. Adam, in fact, although he was not God, the first Adam, was a figure of the Christ that was to come. And you'll hear terminology, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this today, but in that figure of him that was to come, Adam is what's called a federal head to his posterity or the generations that would follow after him. Adam, in the order of creation... Nobody would argue with this, was before Eve. Okay, so Adam was before Eve. We can typify this by saying that Christ was before the church. Okay, so it wasn't the church and then Christ showed up on the scene. It was Christ first, then the church. So God, in his perfect knowledge, looks at Adam and says, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. And we know the story, hopefully. So he gives Adam a helpmeet. Now again, Christ was before the church, and yet Christ was also given these people that would be his own. The church. As a gift from the Father. So how was Eve formed? Eve was formed from Adam. Typical of the fact that the church came out from Christ. Christ is the head of the church. We are, we are from him. 
The church is not just this organization that stands by itself and then Christ is over here. That's why to have a church that Christ is not the center of ceases to be a church from top to bottom. Eve, of course, was made of him while Adam was asleep. Who sent the sleep to Adam? God himself. This was not some ordinary sleep. We read Scripture oftentimes and we think just like when we go to bed in a number of hours tonight. But this was a sleep that God the Father had placed upon Adam. It wasn't a common sleep. Something was taking place here. When the Lord came and suffered and died, He died a death unlike anyone else. By the way, He suffered like anyone else. Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection was like unlike anything else. It's saddened, it saddens me when we think about that the media, Hollywood, can try to produce what God created and do it accurately. I can put people in a scene. I can stage it. I can say, here's what it looked like. Here's what it is. And I'm going to get them in my mind's eye. This is what must have been the cross. Yet what I'm not getting, what I'm not seeing, because I'm looking through human eyes, is I'm not seeing this mystery of the union between Christ and His church and all this is taking place. No movie has ever been able to do that. Nor is there a need to. Now, I will, I will tickle the emotions. I can, I can spend millions of dollars on a movie that simply just centers in on his suffering, his passion. I can make you watch that movie. I can make you look at it. I can make you see it. I can make you cringe by the gore of it. I can do it. Even though we're becoming desensitized in society. But even through that gore, you're not seeing the mystery. There's no way to produce it on a screen, the union between Christ and His church, nor to demonstrate Christ's love for His church. It was uncommon. When Adam was put into that sleep, that was not a common sleep where he just laid himself down to sleep one day. It was a sleep sent by God with the intent purpose of creating Eve. She was taken out of his side, built up of a woman out of using one of his ribs. We understand the fact that we are built up in Christ. Our justification, our sanctification, our glorification are all from Christ. When Eve is presented to Adam, okay, go back and read this in Genesis. Hopefully after you we study this today, you read Genesis again and you read it with eyes that are actually seeing, trying to attempt to see this mystery. The presentation of Eve to Adam has a mystery in itself. Who brought Eve to Adam? God himself. God brought her to him. She was the very same that was made out of him. And to the very same Adam was she brought of out of his rib. Understanding this, it is God that draws souls to Christ. It is Christ who espouses his people unto himself. 
the very same Eve was chosen for Adam. Christ redeemed us. Understand that what's happening here is Adam acknowledged, consented that Eve was in fact his wife. This puts a shadow, a type, forward of how Christ would willingly consent and acknowledge to receive his people as his own. How would they be brought unto him? By the influence of the Spirit. None of us wanted to be the bride of Christ. You didn't wake up one day and say, I want to be the bride of Christ. There's a really frightening, frightening, frightening movement that happened, started happening 10 years ago where they get this really spooky, weird emphasis on the romantic side and being in a, some sort of, and again, I'm going to be very careful with my words, being in some sort of a romantic relationship with Jesus. And you better be aware that this is more prevalent than what you know. There are people who walk around this world who think and treat that they're in some kind of a romantic relationship with Jesus himself. I wish I was lying to you. I wish that was something I just made up on the fly. It's out there. And many of your new insightful Christian books are written from the perspective of misusing Christ and his love for the church and this marriage relationship. And it's particularly dangerous to young women. It's very dangerous to young women. They're beginning to almost use very frightening language in how they address Jesus even in their prayers. It's a complete abuse of what Christ intended this to be. When we're brought unto Christ, we were brought unto Him according to His way, according to His perfect will. And verse 33, he says, nevertheless, there's that powerful theological word. Nevertheless, this mystery, he draws it back to the husband and wife. Let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Paul turns back to the, other, the subject now and he restates very important in Scripture. That's why we have repetitive verses. There's a, there's a reason why God in the Word repeats Himself. It's to draw our attention to the realities of what He's saying. He restates this. He restates the responsibilities of the husband and the wife. Now remember, we haven't really spoken a lot about what Paul had said in verse 22 about wives submitting. Remember I said there would be about nine verses about what the husband was to do towards his wife. But now Paul returns to these mutual responsibilities. He's given them the example. He's called them in to try to engage their affections. He's shown them the picture of Christ's love for the church. And now what he's stating is, I want every married person to take note of what's been said. That every one of you in particular, that, that he's talking specifically about to married people. 
love his wife even as himself, which is contrary to a man hating himself. A man cannot hate himself and love his wife. He said, you ought to love his wife even as himself. Why is he to do that? Because they're one flesh. John Calvin said this, the man who does not love his wife is a monster. That staggered me. And I thought, if the true picture of what Christ is intending for this one flesh relationship it's, it's a reflection of that unnatural thought. How can a man and a woman, a woman and a man who are one flesh, how is it possible for that man to hate his wife? That's a part of him. Folks, very rarely, very rarely, will that concept be given during a marriage ceremony. You're going to, you'll hear a lot about covenant. You'll hear about I promise to. I promise to honor. And I know those words are gone too. Cherish and obey. I got it. I, I get it. And Christians have taken that out too because they think God got it wrong. But if this is done in the proper way that which Christ intended this to be, that husband and that wife have absolutely no problem saying these things to each other because they understand the real meaning of them. Not the world's definition of them. See, the problem is we are viewing everything through what the world says. That's why the church is starting to accept marriage that is not what God said is marriage. That's why there's the ordination that you're seeing of churches accepting all different sorts of marriage. You can call marriage whatever you want it to be, but you have a problem. That marriage is supposed to illustrate the one flesh. And there's only one way of marriage can do that. And that's the biblical way through one man and one woman. It will be normal and acceptable in less than five years in every state in this country, in, in this, every state in this country and probably every nation in the world to just accept marriage for whatever man wants it to be. That's why the church is changing too, folks. That's why, the, that's why you see churches running off the rails. And it all started with the marriage. It started with the concept of marriage. It wasn't even this big doctrine that got in that was heretical. It started when they went after what God says is marriage. Because what you're doing is you're completely corrupting what Christ said this was supposed to be about. Your marriage is supposed to be a picture of what Christ's love for the church is. And that's clear. There's only one way for that to be. Since this wife is to be loved by her husband, the wife says, see, the wife see that she reverence her husband. He leaves father and mother for her. And biblically speaking, going all the way back to that federal head, again, what the, what the world is screaming against, a man is not greater than a woman. That's not anywhere what Scripture is saying. That's just what the world's telling you. And parents with daughters make this a point of emphasis. I've raised two, not perfectly, but I am telling you, you better be, you better be the one explaining these things to them. Because the world's not telling them that. 
The world is telling them, listen, everything, when you hear it, they're saying men are more important, they're more valuable, they're more this, they're more that. You better, <laughs> you better handle this. And grandparents, if you're grandparenting young girls, you better teach them that too. And husbands, give a picture of what it is to actually love your wife the right way. Show her, show them what it's supposed to look like. Is it going to be perfect? No. But this one flesh is the marriage union, and we ought to compare our marriages and compare them to what Christ's union with the church looks like. What did Christ do? He left his father's throne to come to this earth. He loved us with an infinite, everlasting affection. He and his church are one. He provides for them, he protects them, he gives them his name forever. Imagine, I don't think anybody here who's a true believer has any problem at all submitting themselves to Christ. At least there shouldn't be. Paul ends this section by simply acknowledging that husbands and wives should observe and follow Christ's example in how they love their wives and how wives submit to their husbands respectively. Folks, this is not wrong. This is the way God intended for it to be. And I hope that we'll see the great truth that's before us. Next week, we're going to get into the last chapter of Ephesians. And we'll deal primarily with the first four verses. If you'd like to read ahead, I always encourage you to do that. We'll be dealing with verses 1 through 4. As Paul now turns his attention to children and their parents. And I think, of course, that's going to be uh, fitting as well. Let's conclude our time this morning by singing the hymn on page 209, 209.